Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast, a Canadian real estate podcast that shows you how to pay off your mortgage sooner and live well while doing it. Now, here's your host, Sean Cooper. Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. I'm Sean Cooper and it's great to be back for another episode. On today's show, I'll be talking to Neil Winokur. Neil, a CPA, is the author of the new book, The Grumpy Accountant. An active blogger, several of his articles have been published in the National Post. Neil feels a moral obligation to speak out against the inherent flaws unfairness and needless complexities that define Canadian tax. His dream is for the Canadian tax system to be massively simplified to the point where his job as a tax accountant would no longer exist. His wife won't be too happy about this, but it's for the good of the nation. In my interview with Neil, we discuss the tax breaks first time home buyers receive how the RSP home buyer plan works and the tax implications of renting out your home. Without further ado, here's my interview with Neil Winokur. Hi, Neil. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you. It's uh, wonderful to have you on the podcast. Just finished reading your book recently, and I thought that you'd be a great person to have on the show just to talk about taxes. You somehow managed to make taxes interesting in, in your book. It's definitely a pretty amazing feat because I know they're not the most exciting thing in the world. So excited to be chatting with you today about your new book. Thank you so much. Yeah, it, it was fun to write. It was a labor of love. And I, I wrote it in a way that people, you know, normal human beings like non-accountants could understand and appreciate and find funny. So thank you so much for having me on. And I'm glad you enjoyed the book. Great. Well, can you tell the listeners about your book, The Grumpy Accountant? What inspired you to write it? Well, it started because every day after work, dealing with CRA every day and filing people's tax returns, dealing with the Canadian tax system, every day I finished work, I would complain to my wife about it and complaining and complaining and complaining. And eventually she told me, that she was tired of this, like she didn't want to hear these complaints anymore, but she did like some of my ideas. And she suggested that I write some articles or write a blog or something. And I thought that was a great idea. So I started writing down some of these ideas that were in my head. And every night I would be lying awake in bed, having trouble falling asleep because I would be thinking about this, you know, thinking about how complicated our tax system is and how it doesn't have to be this way. So I started writing down these thoughts and I quickly realized there's a whole book here. This isn't just a few articles or, or we, you know, a blog, like this really, this topic could really be a whole book. And if I could find a way to make the book interesting and relatable and funny and informative, I think that this could be like a really interesting book for millions of Canadians to, to read and, and to appreciate. Great. And then you ended up writing the book. And I'm just curious, the characters in the book, I believe their names are Jerry, Elaine, and George. Are these, are these based on 
real people that you know. You don't have to name the, the people on the podcast, but did you just kind of make up the characters or is, is George like, is he like kind of a, an extension of yourself because you've gotten grumpy over some of these complicated tax things over the years? Yeah, I, I guess George is, it's basically me. I'm writing, I'm writing myself into the story. Jerry symbolizes the typical average Canadian going through life, bumbling through the tax system at every stage in life. And I don't want to ruin the whole story because it's written as a narrative. So I'm not going to ruin the story, but Elaine, Jerry, they're, you know, they're going through the tax system. George is the grumpy accountant trying to help them. And the stories in the book that they experience are based off real life experiences that I've been through with my clients. It's interesting. Some of the feedback I've received about the book is that people are telling me, Oh, that, that happened to me or something similar like that happened to me or someone I know. Like, so it's, it's relatable. And, and the characters, it's interesting. I've, I've never written a book before and I didn't know about, you know, character development and these types of things, but it was a lot of fun to write. And it, it was a great experience to, to write these characters and even to sort of base the character off of myself. Yeah, I mean, as a first-time author, I'm not sure if you hired an editor or whatnot, but honestly, the book read really well. And like I said at the beginning of the show, you somehow managed to make taxes interesting. Like, the story definitely flows. So I would say anyone that's interested in learning more about the Canadian tax system, you could read online on the CRA website, but you're probably going to fall asleep at your computers. Definitely check out Neil's book, I, I would say. It's, it's definitely a, it's an interesting read and uh, you'll learn a ton about the tax system too. Yeah. And I, I definitely had an editor for sure. A very good one. <laughs> Old shows definitely. Yep. So great. In your book, you have a chapter dedicated to real estate appropriately titled Home Sweet Home. Can you talk about some of the tax breaks first time home buyers receive? Right. So first time home buyers, there's a few different tax uh, issues they should be aware of. One of them is federal uh, tax credit. So this is really across the country on your tax return. In the year you purchase a home, if, it's the, if you do qualify as a first time home buyer, you will be eligible to claim what's called the first time home buyers tax credit. And it's basically $750. So it's a $5,000 credit and it's worth 15% of that. So you, you basically save $750 on your taxes in that year. To qualify as a first-time home buyer for that credit, you have to have not owned a home in the past five years. So you, you have to have been renting for the past five years. And also if, if you're married or living common law, if your spouse qualifies as a first-time home buyer, but you don't, then your spouse doesn't either. She can't, he or she won't be able to claim the credit if you're not eligible for it. So it's a bit, again, this is my pet peeve with our tax system. It's a little more complicated than people think uh, because technically if 10 years ago you owned a home and you think, oh, I, I'm not a first time home buyer. I owned a home 10 years ago. Well, the rule is it's only in the past five years that matters. So you may still qualify for this credit even if you maybe think you don't. So that's, from the, that's on your federal tax return. Depending on the province you live in, you might have something called land transfer tax when you buy a house or, uh, or, or you buy a property. If you're a first-time homebuyer, you get to claim a rebate of a portion of that, of land transfer tax. So it's very important to make sure whoever's helping you buy your, your, your house, whether it's a real estate agent, real estate lawyer, anyone involved should know that you're a first-time homebuyer so they can claim this rebate for you because it's not on your tax return you file at the end of the year. This is actually when the closing happens, when the land transfer tax is paid. 
Great. Thanks so much for mentioning that. And with the land transfer tax in Ontario, how it works is don't you get the rebate like immediately? It's not like, you know, you pay the full land transfer tax and then they send you the money back later. Is that correct? It's like an immediate rebate. Right. It's it's right off. Yeah, exactly. Like when the closing happens and all of the money flows around in the different trust accounts with the different lawyers on each side of the deal, the land transfer tax will be paid. You don't actually have to physically you know, go to some sort of municipal tax office and pay it or write a check. It's all done when the closing happens. And that's when the rebate happens as well. I think if you fail to apply right then at that time, I think there's still a process where you can apply later on for the rebate if it wasn't done at the time of closing. But there are deadlines. So it's important to just get it done right when the closing happens. And definitely hire a good real estate lawyer so that you don't miss the rebate either. Yes, for sure. Absolutely. Great. So there's one other item for first-time home buyers. The government encourages home ownership with the RSP home buyers plan. Can you briefly explain what that is and how it works? And as well as what are some common mistakes to avoid with the uh, home buyers plan? Sure. So here's another example of how they've made our tax system too complicated because there are ways they could do this. It's so much easier and simpler for people to understand. But basically the way it works is if you have money in your RRSP, usually when you withdraw money from your RRSP, that amount you withdraw gets included in your income and you have to pay tax on it in that year you withdrew it. And there's an exception for what's called the home buyer's plan which means if you are a first-time home buyer, you can take out up to $35,000 from your RSP. And in the year you take it out, you don't have to pay tax on it. And that can go towards the purchase of your house. Now for the next 15 years, each year you have to pay money, you have to pay it back into your RSP, or it just gets included in your income, a small amount over the next 15 years. So instead of paying a big tax bill in the year you withdraw it, you basically spread that out over 15 years. So it's a way for you to access your RSP money to help you with the down payment or help you with the purchase of a property. If I could redesign our tax system, I would just make things simpler by maybe getting rid of the RSP altogether and just having the TFSA and making the TFSA easier to understand. Because with TFSA, you can just take the money out. There's no tax. You don't have to worry about it. It's more flexible. But RSP home buyers plan, that's there for first-time home buyers. The limit used to be 25000 The government raised it to 35000 because they knew housing costs were kept increasing, and especially in the GTA and in Vancouver and you know, major cities in the country. So they wanted to help people have more money for down payment. But the limit's now 35000 And if you are married or living common law, each spouse can take out 35000 from each of their RRSPs. It's a pretty beneficial thing out there for first-time homebuyers. And I'm just curious, can you talk about the definition of what a first-time homebuyer is under the RSP homebuyers plan? Because you were mentioning under the federal tax credit, the first-time homebuyers tax credit, it's actually five years to be considered a first-time homebuyer. But my understanding under the homebuyers plan is it's actually four years that you're considered a first-time homebuyer. Is is that correct? I think so. I'd have to look it up. If you just go on the CRA website, RSP, Home Buyers Plan, all the information is there and we have to look it up. But I I think you're correct. That sounds very familiar. And you might run into the same problem if you are married or living common law and one spouse is not a first-time home buyer, then you may, again, I have to look it up, but it gets complicated. You have to make sure if you're really eligible or not. And, And the way you actually physically do it is you fill out a form with your bank, wherever you hold the RSP, there's a form that you fill out and, and, 
and the you know the bank or whoever you hold the RSP they can help you with it, and the bank has to like approve that, and then and then the withdrawal can happen. Yes, and on that topic, I've I don't know if this has happened for any of your clients, but I've heard uh, a common mistake of the RSP home buyers plan is people aren't aware of the form that you have to fill out, and they actually just go and withdraw the money from their RSP and. That's not the correct way to do oh. it without filling out the form. Have you, has that happened to any of your clients? And what are some other mis- potential mistakes that you could make? I would think not paying back the installments would would be kind of a mistake because you lose the RSP room forever. So yeah, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that and any other mistakes that perhaps you've run into over the years. Yeah, that, that would be a big no-no. I mean, if you want to take out under the home buyer's plan, you have to you there's a specific form you have to file uh, you have to fill out and and the bank keeps on file and and that way when the money comes out of your rsp you won't receive a tax slip for it because if you just take out money from the rsp without doing the proper form the bank gives you a what's called t4 rsp it's a t4 slip that shows the amount you took out from your rsp that gets filed to cra and now you have extra income in your tax return and taxes payable that you didn't plan for so yeah very important to do that properly that's never happened that specific situation has never happened to any of my clients actually i think most most of my clients usually they would ask me first um, when they're doing something like this so that hasn't happened to any of my clients but um, some of the other pitfalls might be people yeah like you said not realizing you know you do have to pay it back over the next 15 years and some people just don't do that and then the income gets included in their tax return and they owe a tiny bit of tax on it each year depending on what other income they have but some other mistakes people might make is they might put a lot of money into their RSPs and then they realize oh now I want to buy a house and I can only take out 35,000 and maybe I have like 70,000 or 100,000 in my RSP and I, I've put in too much. So it's very important before you decide to contribute to your RSP in the first place, you have to really look at your whole kind of financial situation, your short-term goals, medium-term, long-term goals. You have to decide, okay, RSP or TFSA, which one's better? Maybe, uh, if you can do both, maybe you do both. If you can only choose one, well, it really depends. So sometimes people put too much into their RSP and then they want to buy a house. And then if they want to take out more than the 35,000, well, now they have to pay tax on the, on anything above the 35 because the home buyer's plan only covers up to 35. So there's a lot of thought that has to go into this. And that's why I think TFSA contributions are the best, but RSP also could be very good for those with higher incomes. So that's the whole kind of other issue, RSP versus TFSA. And that's something that everyone should really try to get that proper advice from someone who could look at your whole financial situation for you and your whole family and and devise a plan. And and you can have a plan every year of of how you're going to approach that. Great. Uh, Yes, I agree totally. In terms of the form to withdraw the money from your RSP, it's called Form T1036 Home Buyers Plan Request for Withdrawal Funds from an RSP. So definitely be sure to fill in that form. When the time comes, don't just take the money out of your account. Otherwise, you're going to run into a real headache with CRA. Yeah, exactly. On the topic of home ownership, as mentioned, the cost of home ownership is higher in big cities like Toronto and Vancouver. So a common thing that people are doing, myself included, are deciding to rent out part of their their home. So uh, renting out part of your home can be a great way to burn your mortgage sooner, as I like to say. What are the tax implications of renting out 
part of your primary residence, renting out a basement or a spare bedroom on Airbnb, something like that? Sure. So it depends. There's a difference between what they call short-term rentals and then, you know, more long-term rentals. So if, if you're renting out your, let's say you're renting out your basement to a tenant who signs a one-year lease, you know, more traditional style of, of, of rent. So you have to report all the rental income on your tax return on the statement called T776, Statement of Real Estate Rentals. And it's actually not as complicated as it looks, although it's a little bit complicated. You have to show all the rental income, but then you get to claim expenses. So you get to claim a portion of your property taxes, your mortgage interest, your home insurance, any repairs and maintenance you have to do for the rental unit and utilities. I mean, if the tenant's paying utilities, then you can't really claim that as an expense. But if you're including utilities in the rent, then you could claim a portion of utilities. You get to claim expenses. So most people in practice, they might not have a lot of net income or profit after they claim all the expenses. So it might not add too much to your tax bill. But there are a couple of things to be very aware of. They're very important. You don't want to jeopardize your principal residence status. Meaning if this is the house you live in and your plan is I'm going to live here and then when I sell the house, it's my principal residence. I'm not paying tax on the sale. Well, you have to make sure you're not renting out 50% of your house. If you're renting out more than half of your house or half of it, the CRA might look at it and say, well, this isn't really a principal residence anymore. You also don't want to claim what's called CCA, capital cost amortization. It's really depreciation for tax purposes. If you claim CCA, claim that to lower your tax bill each year, bring your net income down to zero from the rental income. But if you do that, you might jeopardize your principal residence exemption. That might not be something, you know, that's not something you want to do. So you got to be careful with that. Now, short-term rentals, if you're doing Airbnb, if you're renting under 30 days and you have short-term rentals, you then have to worry about HST if you or GST, HST, depending on your province, if you're going to hit $30,000 of income each year or in four consecutive quarters, you then have to register for HST number and collect HST on the Airbnb rental income, file HST returns. So it can get pretty complicated. And also Airbnb income isn't considered rental income. It doesn't go on the T776 statement. It goes on something else called the T2125 statement, which is people who are self-employed are familiar with that statement. That's for business income and expenses. And you would actually report the short-term rental income as business income on your tax return. Um, You're allowed to do this without jeopardizing principal residence. You're allowed to rent out a room or rent out a basement. But if you make what, what they call structural changes to your home in order to rent it out, major structural changes, and it's not exactly clear what that is, it could be a gray area sometimes, then you might be putting your principal residence status in jeopardy. So it's important to be aware of some of the complicating factors here. It's not always as simple as people think. Great. Thanks for explaining that so clearly. And, and just a couple quick scenarios I want to run by you. What if somebody's turning their primary residence into a rental property or vice versa? How does that work from a tax standpoint? And what about if you have a standalone rental property? How does that work from a ta- tax standpoint as well? First of all, the standalone rental property. So you live in a house somewhere that's your principal residence and you have another property where you fully rent out. It's the same principle. If you're fully renting out a property, you still have to report the rental income and all the expenses from that property onto your tax return every year. And then when you sell that property, you'll report a capital gain on your tax return. And a capital gain is the difference. It's, it's what you sold it for 
minus what, what you purchased it for, plus if you did major renovations, you could claim that as part of the cost to lower the capital gain. And half of the capital gain is tax-free and half of it gets included in your income and you pay tax on that half. Now, if you're, if you're converting your principal residence into a rental property or vice versa, then you have what's called, what they call in tax language, a change in use. And what that means is, let's say you live in a house and you decide to move somewhere else and you want to rent out your house. Well, now you have what's called, and in my opinion, this is a bit ridiculous because what they, they call it a deemed disposition, okay? And deemed disposition means, disposition means like sale, like you sold the house, you disposed it, you sold it. Deemed means, well, you didn't really sell it, right? You still own it. But the CRA, the tax, from a tax perspective, it's deemed, it's considered to have been sold. It's like you sold it and therefore there's a capital gain, which in my opinion is just so ridiculous. Why would we be forcing people to pay a capital gains tax on an asset they haven't actually sold? It doesn't really make any sense at all. There's no logic behind it. But with change in use, there is an election you could file to avoid this capital gain if you're not owning another place. So here's the scenario. Let's say you own a house you live there. You decide, I don't want to live here anymore. I'm going to rent it out. And you start renting it out and you move to somewhere else where you rent, meaning you don't own anywhere else. Well, now you could delay that capital gain, that change in use by four years. For the next four years, if you're renting somewhere else, you could still consider that of the, the, new, the house you changed to rental property as your principal residence for another four years. But there's a specific form you have to file with CRA and that, that's filed actually separately from your tax return. And if you file that election, then your change in use, there wouldn't be a capital gain or anything. You convert from a rental property to a principal residence. Again, you have that same issue. You have this change in use you have to worry about. You might have to show that on your tax return as a deemed disposition, a sale. You might have to pay a capital gains tax. So again, when, when you're doing something like that, you may want to speak to some sort of tax advisor just to make sure you're not missing out on anything because there's these elections that can be filed to help save you on tax and, and save you in some of these negative consequences of doing that. I just want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly. So let's say I'm single, I own my own primary residence, and then I meet somebody and decide to buy a new primary residence and turn my existing primary residence into a rental property. So in that instance there, are you saying that I couldn't make that election that you referred to and I would have to pay the CRA capital gains tax? Am I understanding that correctly? Well, in that case, because it was your principal residence, when you change in use to rental property, you won't be able to make that election to continue having it as your principal residence because now it's your rental property and you're living somewhere else as your principal residence. But there wouldn't be tax to pay because, again, when you report that uh, in your tax return, it, it was, in fact, your principal residence. But you still have to report it as a deemed disposition in your tax return in the year that that happened. And that was your principal residence. So it will still be exempt from a capital gains tax at that point. Okay, thanks. Thanks for clarifying that. It's definitely recommend anyone that, especially with real estate, because capital gains taxes, this isn't a tax bill of like $500. We're talking about thousands or, or tens of thousands or maybe even hundreds of thousands of dollars. I would definitely speak with a, a smart accountant like Neil because you don't want to make a mistake and then end up uh, having CRA sending you a huge tax bill in the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. That doesn't sound like a very fun scenario to go through. No, and there's another issue, even if it's your principal residence, there's a new rule that started in 2016 for the 2016 tax year, whereby you must report the sale of your principal residence in your tax return, even though it's your principal residence, it's exempt from tax, there's no tax to pay, but 
you have to show it in your tax return and report it. And there's penalties if you don't report it. And some speculation as to why the government put in that rule could be that they were trying to catch, there's a lot of people flipping houses out there and people who are flipping houses claiming, oh, it's my principal residence. I don't need to pay capital gains tax on this or, or show this as business fully taxable business income. It's, I was living there. So the government wanted to kind of sort of crack down on this and try to track some of these property sales better. So now they force every single person who sells their house to report it in their tax return. So don't forget to do that. And there's no tax to pay, but you do have to report it. Now the cynic, the cynical person like me would say, maybe the government put in that rule because maybe one day down the road, they want to start taxing our principal residences. They want to remove the principal residence exemption and maybe requiring us to report it on our tax return, even though we don't have to pay tax right now, maybe it's to sort of get us used to the idea that when we sell their house, well, we have to put it in a tax return and the next logical step will be now there might be some tax to pay, but that's just speculation and we don't know what will happen down the road. Let's hope that never happens, but I'm a bit of a cynic as well myself. We'll see what happens, but yeah, hopefully that never happens. (laughs) Can you talk about the tax consequences of real estate when somebody passes away? In the first instance, if there's a surviving spouse and second instance that there is no surviving spouse. So for example, a widow passes away or a single person passes away and there's no surviving spouse. What happens in that instance from a tax standpoint? Right. So if it's the principal residence, there's two different tax issues that, that, that happen on the date of death. Number one is a deemed disposition of one's assets. So like a lot of people in Canada think Canada doesn't have a death tax. And that's because we don't have inheritance taxes, right? So when you inherit money from someone who died, it's tax-free to you. But the person who died on the date of death, there is a capital gain that must be reported in that person's what we call the final tax return up to the date of death. And it's a capital gain based on all the assets they own at the date of death are deemed to have been sold, deemed disposition, and the capital gain tax must be paid. Now, the principal residence is exempt from that, but there might still be a reporting requirement on that person's tax return. Now, if they're not the sole surviving spouse, meaning they're the first spouse to pass away, and if they own the house jointly, then the house will transfer to the surviving spouse. But then another tax issue is it depends on the province you live in. So for example, Ontario has what they call probate. And probate, it's like a provincial, it's basically a provincial estate tax in a way. And it's based on the value of your estate. And part of that value, actually the principal residence is included in that. So you may have to pay a tax on the value of the principal residence, but there, there are complicated ways to avoid probate. And this is where you get into estate planning and you need to speak to an estate lawyer and, and accountants who's kind of specialized in that area. But I believe if it's held jointly, it doesn't hit probate until the last surviving spouse, um, if I'm not mistaken. So it's important that when you're purchasing a house, if you are married or living common law or you have a spouse that maybe you own a house and then, and then you get married and the spouse moves in or you move into someone else's house. When you take title of the house, there's different ways to structure that joint, whether you own it jointly with survivorship, survivorship or without. You have to be careful there and you got to speak to the proper advisors there. And I forget offhand what exactly it's called, like joint with survivorship or without. There's different ways to structure it so that maybe probate taxes could be avoided when the house transfers from one spouse to the other upon death. 
But I guess the main message from that is definitely speak to the experts and plan this in advance because otherwise you could be surprised with a big tax bill at, at the end when somebody passes away, which is the last thing you want to be worrying about when you're grieving for the loss of, of somebody that you care about. Right. And another point is some people think that they could just, oh, I'll just gift the house, my principal residence to my, my children who are now adults. Let's say somebody in their 80s or 90s and they say, well, I have my, my children in their 50s. And to avoid probate, I'll just, I'll just give the house to my, my children. I'll just add them on title. It's not as simple as people think. I mean, when you, you can't really gift property in Canada to someone else without it's still considered like it's sold. So you still have to be careful with these rules. If you add someone on title to your house, it's, it's not as simple as people think. So it's important to talk to a real estate lawyer, a state lawyer, tax lawyer, or accountant who specializes in estate planning because the rules are, are pretty complicated. And also they change a lot. Like sometimes the, these rules about probate and estate every few years, they keep changing. So it's important to speak to someone who's up to date on it. Well, good to know. That's some great advice right there. Neil, it's been great having you on the show today. Before I let you go, is there anything of interest that you're working on that you'd like to share with our listeners? Uh, sure. Well, my main project is is the book, The Grumpy Accountant. So my website is up there, grumpyaccountant.ca. And there's some uh, reviews up there, I believe, including a review from you, Sean. So thank you for that. And there's some videos up on there as well that kind of talk about the book, explain the book. And there's an audio book. I actually recorded the audio book. If you want to listen to me rant for over five hours, you could listen to the audio book. And there's an audio book sample on the website. And there's an excerpt of me reading from the last chapter of the book up there. I'm trying to, I think the goal with this book will be to sort of try to really start a movement of tax simplification, try to really push for this because I've been really frustrated over the years. And even if you, you could see just the discussion we had right now, how complicated they've made things, it really shouldn't be this way. We shouldn't be having to, to report things in our tax return on which there's no tax to even pay, just these kind of disclosure things. So there's a lot in our tax system that can be improved and simplified. And that's what I'm really working on and focusing on. So check out grumpyaccountant.ca and you could sign up. I have a, an e-newsletter I send out once in a while with articles that I write and updates because I do want to kind of get a movement going to really advocate and, and push for tax simplification in Canada. Well, I definitely am all for that myself. So if you start a petition one day that you're sending to the federal government in Ottawa, let me know and I'd be happy to sign it myself. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. Besides being a podcast host, I'm also an independent mortgage broker. If you or anyone you know, family, friends, co-workers, or neighbors could ever use any unbiased mortgage advice or a second opinion, feel free to reach out. Email me at sean, that's S-E-A-N, at burnyourmortgage.ca or call or text me at 647-867-3711 for a free mortgage consultation. Also, be sure to head on over to www.burnyourmortgage.ca and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. As a small token of my appreciation, you'll be able to download my ultimate mortgage checklist on choosing the perfect mortgage. I look forward to hearing from you and helping you with all your mortgage needs. Once again, thanks for listening.
You've been listening to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating. Until next time, happy mortgage burning.